Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I'm in the studio today with the one and only Mr. Attorney Sean Garner, and then we've got Cody or Cody Beeson, our, uh, our guru on the board, pushing buttons and turning dials and making us sound as good as he can. It's a really hard job. But uh, it's a beautiful Monday morning. It's been a little humid, a little hot. Uh, we've been following up on our last episode. Last week, we talked significantly about the water laws here in Arizona and the, the use of the Colorado River. And Sean, you were, you were pivotal in bringing in Mr. Wade Noble, who's also an attorney in this area. Cody, you made the comment that that Wade Noble is quite the heavy hitter in the state of Arizona when it comes to water law and that we were privileged to have him on our show last time. And and that's exactly right because he travels around the state and he visits with um, select governments in order to counsel them as to what to do in their treaties and their packs and, and the, the status of the water and the usage here in Arizona. So he knows a lot, suffice it to say. And Sean, you've really become quite the guru as well when it comes to water law. I know that uh, when you went to law school in Colorado, this is one of the things that was a big topic to you. Lo and behold, you ended up downstream of the Colorado, and uh, it's still near and dear to your heart. And I, you're an avid uh, a boater, and so you you take uh, note of the water levels of the river and of the wash uh, quite often because you're out there a lot with your family. What what's the status? Are we in a drought? Are we going to be in jeopardy in ten years of not having water in in Yuma County, or is that uh, something that's just not even feasible? So we're in what they call a mega drought. So it's not just a drought. It's not, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's not just a severe drought. Um, it's a mega drought. Some people say ultra that ultra mega. <laughs> Ultra, yeah, it's ultra mega. I think the only the ultra mega movement could fix the situation that we're in, and in fact, we'll get back to that as we get um, closer to the specific issues that we need to address with this drought. But yeah, we're in a very very severe drought. Uh, so when the Colorado River was apportioned between the seven states that use the Colorado River for urban, industrial, and agricultural use. Uh, they measured how much water flowed on an average over a 100-year period, roughly. And uh, they determined that it was about 16.4 million acre-feet. So to put that into perspective, how much water that is, think about it in these terms. So there's 16.4 million acre-feet flowing through the Colorado River each year, or historically that's what it had been. So how much is an acre-foot of water? Well, think of a football field. If you were to fill up a football field a foot deep, that is approximately one acre foot. And so 16.4 football fields, one, eight, one foot deep, that is, that is how much water flows through the Colorado River each year. Or one football field filled 16.4 million feet deep. Okay, that's a very, very deep swimming pool. That's how much water we're talking about. So we're going to talk about water in acre feet, and that's how they measure water. So um, that is a good analogy to picture when we, when we talk about acre feet of water. So right now, 
So the Colorado River um, it has a flow of 16.4 million acre feet per year. And so when they determine the allocation of the water between the states, they determined it based on that flow. Now, some years it's actually more, other years it's less, but that was the average over the time. And so that's why the reservoirs were created, because we wanted to adjust for times and, and, and save up water during dry seasons and add additional water to the reservoirs during extra wet seasons. And so we've got all this water saved up for droughts. And so we could go through a period of drought of five years in a row and still be fine because of the reservoirs. Now, what are those reservoirs? Lake Mead and Lake Powell primarily. Now, there's a lot of reservoirs throughout. Um, we've got the Imperial Dam that's right close to us. We've got the Flaming Gorge up in Utah. We've got the Navajo in New Mexico. So there's a lot of reservoirs all over. We've got the Roosevelt Reservoir that's over in the uh, Mesa Phoenix metropolitan area. And uh, so there's a lot of ways to store this water for a rainy day. And that has actually made it possible for our states to grow and the agriculture to be produced. Because uh, initially when this, the West was settled, the Colorado River was so rapid and so uh, unpredictable that irrigation was really, really difficult because as soon as they started making canals to irrigate out of the Colorado River, it would flood and wash everything out, all the infrastructure out. Oh, I mean, it was a mile wide is, is what we heard back here. Not, not, yeah, absolutely. We, and if you go to the Yuma Territorial Prison, if you stand up on top of the prison, you can actually see where it used to be. There's actually kind of a, a bathtub line of water where it used to be. That whole valley right there where it goes up onto to the other side of the Ocean Ocean Bridge on the California side, that's where the Colorado used to flow through. Now it's, it's reduced down to a relative trickle of what it was before. Now, some people, a lot of um, environmentalists or so-called, say that's a terrible thing. We need to restore the Colorado River to its former glory. I don't see it as a terrible thing because most of that water was rushing through the United States, through all of the West, and dumping into the Gulf of California and depositing a lot of silt there and, and developing this huge delta in the Gulf of California and into the saltwater seas of the ocean right there. Now, I think that using that water, that fresh water that uh, produces crops, that produces drinking water for us, that produces the clean water that we need to run our businesses and to operate everything, you know, water is everything for us here in this arid country or arid west, uh, I think it's an incredible feat of human engineering that we were able to harness the power of the Colorado River. Because not only does it pr produce life and, and allow the, the desert to blossom like a rose, but it also produces electricity, very clean electricity. So environmentalists who are thinking we need to reduce our carbon footprint, well, that's a wonderful way to do it. The combined um, Hoover Dam and Davis Dams, they make up about 7.5 megawatts of electricity. That's enough electricity for about 8 million households. That's a lot of electricity, very cleanly produced. 
And what's the byproduct of creating those reservoirs? Well, we create millions of acre feet of surface water that produces the ability for more natural wildlife. Many more deer can be supported by it instead of rushing waters in a relatively narrow stream flowing through. We've got reservoirs or lakes that are miles wide and miles long. Each of these lakes, Lake Powell, I believe is, it's hard to say how long it is exactly because it has a lot of different, you know, fingers and areas that it branches out to different canyons. But if, if you go to, um, from Davis Dam to the mouth of the Colorado River, that's about 80 miles and that water is deep. We're talking, it averages between 150 and 300 feet deep of water for 75 miles. Huge body of water producing a great habitat for all of the fish, um, birds, uh, all the wildlife around it, the deer. Anything that needs water to live in the desert is going to be enhanced by the the growth of the breadth of that reservoir there. Is it still that deep? Or, I mean, obviously, we, we've seen some reduction. Yeah, yeah. So um, Lake Mead is created by the Hoover Dam. And from the Hoover Dam to the mouth of the Colorado River is about 80 miles. So I put in at Lake Mead, you know, you come in from the Las Vegas area, you're on the Nevada side and you put in at Lake Mead. And I took my boat all the way up that 80 mile trek to the mouth of the Colorado River in 2020. Okay. All right. So relatively not too long ago. Yeah. And uh, I have a depth meter on my boat. And when I initially put in, once I got out to the middle of the lake right there by Hoover Dam, I was measuring about 175 feet. And when I went up river through the canyon, I was measuring 300 plus feet. So it's extremely deep and it's a a ton of water. Now, what's really frightening is that the water level has decreased significantly. I could see what they call the bathtub ring on the canyon walls when we were there, and they were about 50 feet high. So by 2000, it had already been uh, lowered by about 50 feet from where it was in 2020. In 2020, it was near full pool. And it's, it's hard when you read the statistics on Lake Mead about how deep it is, because they measure it um, in terms of elevation of sea level, not the depth of the water. So when they're talking about full pool, they're talking about it being about 1,260 feet is full pool. Now, what is that? That's 1,260 feet above sea level is full pool. Mm. (laughs) So the full pool is actually probably about 200 to 225 feet deep. And the floor of the reservoir is changing all the time because of the silt that's washing in out of the Grand Canyon. So when you pass through the Grand Canyon, then you've got on the other side of the Grand Canyon, north of the Grand Canyon, you've got uh, Glen Canyon Dam. And the Glen Canyon Dam makes up Lake Powell. And so Lake Powell has got the same issue. It's got 
constantly rivers flowing into it, the Colorado River and some other tributaries, but silt is washing into it. So the, the floor of the reservoir is constantly changing. And so trying to measure the exact depth of the water is difficult in, in terms of determining how high the water level is. So they measure it. I'm guessing this is why they use above sea level instead of the total depth of the water. And they're also measuring it off of where it meets the dam and how high it is up on the dam wall. So that is, and Adam, I know you want to throw in some childish joke there about the dam wall, but uh, <laughs> no. They, they love those damn jokes on the damn tours. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. <laughs> so they've got a lot of them too. They're almost as prevalent as lawyer jokes. <laughs> anyway, that's how they measure it. Yeah, very interesting. I didn't realize it was based off sea level though. I always thought, you know, you do it how you did it in the boat. Uh-huh. You know, just what's... Yeah, how deep is the water from the surface of the the lake down to the, the lake floor? And no, that's not how they measure it. But it's an immense amount of water that is stored there. And it's stored, obviously, for good reason. We, we can't predict the rain every year. And uh, so we want to have some water there for dry seasons. Now, what's happened in the past 20 years is we've had drought. Um, and depending on what resource you look at, the, the drought is more severe um, than others have determined. But here's the basic consensus that of the last 20 years, eight of the driest years on record make were part of those last 20 years. Of the, so we're talking on record. We, we've got a record of over 120 years of the Colorado River's flow and uh, eight of the driest fit in between 20 or the year 2000 and 2020. So that's bad. Um, we, we're down about 25% of the total precipitation that is contributing to the flow of the Colorado River. Originally, when it was measured over that 100-year period between very early 1900s, I think it was 1906, to uh, 2000, it was determined to be 16 million acre-feet per year. Now it's 12.4 million acre feet per year. So you think about that, that's down 25%. That's a lot. Um, but when you, when you hear about it in the news or when you're reading about it in articles, they're talking about the levels of the reservoirs, they're down nearly 73%. Oh, wow. Okay. And so they're saying... We are in this incredible drought because we have lost 73% of our water. No, that's not necessarily true. The reservoirs have lost 73% of what they contained as of 2000, as of the year 2000. But the actual flow of the river has only been reduced 25%. And I'm not trying to undermine the fact that 25% is a lot. But it's not 75%, right? It's not 73%. It's, it's much less. So if we were to reduce our water usage by 25%, which is doable, then um, that could be sustainable even if this drought continued. And we all hope that the drought won't continue, but we have to plan for it. So we've got to take a break here. We're going to come back with some realities as to what the drought means to us in Arizona and uh, discuss that a little bit more. This is 560 AM KBLU. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this.
Hey you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner. I'm an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson, and I'm sitting in the studio here with Adam Hanson, who is a partner at Deason, Garner, and Hanson, and uh, Cody Beeson. So we talked about how much each state gets from the Colorado River and there are water laws that determine that and these are critical into determining how much we can actually use for our agriculture, for urban use, for residential use and uh, they divide up the Colorado River Basin by two sections, the upper basin and the lower basin. So the upper basin or the upper states would be Utah, Wyoming, Colorado and New Mexico kind of sneaks in there. So those are the four states. And of the flow of the Colorado River each year, they estimated 16.5 million acres gets to be divided. So they gave 7.5 to the upper basin states and 7.5 million acre feet to the lower basin states and then 1.5 to Mexico. Now this was a bit short-sighted because they're actually over that 100-year study was only 16.4 million acre-feet flowing on average through the Colorado River. And if you add all that up, that's actually 16.5 allocated to the different states. So there's more water allocated than there actually historically flowed through the Colorado River. That's where we're having the problem. When people wonder, well, if we're only 25% less water flow currently, even in this mega drought, than we have historically had, why are the reservoirs down nearly 75%? Well, that's because too much water is allocated and states are not reducing the um, share that they take each year when water flows are less. And that's understandable. That's why we build reservoirs in the first place. We want to be able to have a sustainable amount of water each year, even if we have a dry year. But when we have consistent dry years, then we need to have a drought contingency plan in place that helps reduce that distribution proportionately among the states. And it would seem fair and reasonable, looking at it from our point of view, just looking back on history, that each state would reduce its share of water usage proportionately. So let's talk about how much each state, and we're just going to focus on the lower basin here, um, is allocated from the Colorado River. Can can I ask you real quick, uh, does the upper basin and lower basin, do they have equal priority or? Yes. Okay. So the upper basin, they get 7.5 million acre feet, right? And the 
they have to allow the lower basin to get 7.5 million acre feet plus Mexico's portion of 1.5. So that's that's actually 9 million acre feet of water each year. And um, they get to distribute among themselves by percentages. And so Utah gets 23%, Colorado gets 51%, Wyoming gets 14%, and New Mexico gets 11.25%. So that's how they allocate their water. Now down in the lower um, basin, we get, we measure it based on million acre feet. So Arizona gets 2.8 million acre feet. You know, I didn't realize that until right now. So one does it by percent, the other does it by acre feet. Correct. Perfect. Makes total sense in government. Okay, yeah. That's how they do things. They make it confusing as possible. Um, California gets 4.4 million acre feet. And Nevada gets all of 300,000 acre feet. So 0.3. And that's the lower basin for you. So when we reduce the water apportionment based on these droughts, you would think that that would be apportioned proportionately. And so California takes the most amount of water. You would think if they reduce their share by 20% and Arizona reduces its share by 20% and uh, Nevada, it's very meager 300,000 acre feet by 20%, then we would be in a much better situation. But based on the current water laws, Arizona has to reduce significantly more than any other state. And I'm not going to get into the weeds as to what contract and agreement or compact was made up for that. But essentially, Arizona started to divert a lot of water into the central Arizona counties. Uh, That's Maricopa County, Pinal County, and some to Pima County through what was called the Central Arizona Project. And they built the large canal to do that. Now, Colorado or California was opposed to it. And I don't understand how California could determine how Arizona uses its 2.8 million acre feet of water. Whether we want to send it off to the far eastern portion of Arizona, so be it. It's our water rights. And in fact, California does that. Most of California's water that it takes off the Colorado River goes to LA. So it's shooting it all the way across to the other side of the state. And We didn't get any say in saying, well, you know, that's going to have to be reduced first before any of our water rights were reduced. But that's exactly what California did. In this agreement made in uh, 1973, they agreed that in order for Arizona to be allowed to go forward with the Central Arizona project, the water, the canal project, it would have to reduce all of the usage of the water for that project before California was required to reduce any of its allotment of the 4.4 million acre feet. It sounds like somebody made maneuvers because they were sitting in a a position of power, and that's why we got that deal. Yeah, California, for some reason, when the compact was was going into place, it didn't require the ratification of all states. Um, It was determined fairly early on that uh, the Bureau of Reclamation and the Secretary of the Interior would be the overarching authority in determining who got what water rights. And so they determined the allotments and Arizona wasn't required to ratify that. California signed off on it. It liked the deal. And the precedent is first in time, first in right. And California was using it first. And so Arizona could use relatively small amounts of the Colorado River because there wasn't a lot of development in Arizona right along the Colorado River. 
right now we've got some of the bigger developments are Parker, Lake Havasu, and Yuma. But that didn't make up a great portion of the water uses that we use today. And so California was using quite a bit more. And so it got to determine, based on first in use and first in time, how much water was apportioned to its state. I mean, and look at the landscape of what those states looked like at that time. I mean, California was obviously thriving compared to, you know, what when Arizona would be catching up. And sure. You look at Phoenix back in 1973. Yeah. It was... It was a very small but growing um, metropolitan area. And you look at Tucson, the same thing. Um, So the agriculture in central Arizona is significant now. And that agriculture relies very largely on the central Arizona project. And so without that water, they're going to have to rely on wells and underwater sources which are going to eventually be tapped out. So we really need the Colorado River to supply that water. But California, the current agreement, does not have to reduce any of its supply until all of the Central Arizona project is dried up. So here's the question. That's not feasible, right? We can't, we can't dry up Phoenix and Tucson and all the agriculture in between um, before California gets reduced even one million acre feet of water or not or one acre foot of water it wouldn't have to be one million so what is the solution there well and they're going to make the same i'm not i'm not giving you a solution i'm giving you more problems they're going to make the same argument being hey we have agriculture over here we can't we can't lose an acre foot at all you know so they really put themselves in a position um like the best position in the bargain this is a good testament to the moniker that elections have consequences. So during the Trump administration, that administration actually, believe it or not, was fighting for the rights of Arizona and the Colorado River water. You never heard about it, but uh, because of the Trump administration, they were actively trying to detach California's use of our Colorado River water, knowing that they were just dumping it into the ocean. We have to allocate it to them. We don't have to, I mean, theoretically, we don't have to, like you said, Sean, back in the 90s, there was a pact that we never really agreed to, as your understanding, but yet we continue to kind of allow it to happen where California is taking and sucking off of the, the Colorado River, which uh, doesn't allow us to have as much water and puts us in a bind. My, my argument would be, and we talked about this, I mean, we could, in theory... Uh, a new governor in the state of Arizona, if he or she wanted to, I guess it'd be a she, it's either Katie Hobbs or it's uh, uh, Carrie Lake, Lake, but one of those gals could uh, send the National Guard up to Lake Havasu and cut the pipes that are leading to California. What would happen in that type of situation? I mean, you would have a standoff between two states. The federal government gets involved to a certain extent because it crosses state lines and therefore... They feel like they need to uh, consummate this this agreement between New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, and California. But to the extent that we just were to act and do something like that, what, what do you think would happen, Sean? It really depends on actually who the president is, because the president is in control of um, all the administrative bodies that oversee the allocation of the water. 
And so the Secretary of the Interior serves at the president's pleasure. And so if it's a president like President Trump, I think he allows it to happen. I think he allows the states to to work this out. And as long as it's equitable and maybe he has some of the National Guard go in to um, preserve the peace. But um, when President Trump was in office, he actually told California, listen, this idea of you allowing your reservoirs to drain into the ocean is ridiculous because you're killing off the agriculture in Central California, which is is vital to the United States. And we want agriculture produced here in the United States. You don't just get to pour it off into the ocean and then take water from uh, a drought-stricken Colorado River because you can and, uh, and also deprive your own farmers of their ability to produce. You need to allocate the water in your own reservoirs. And California's water crisis is man-made. They have enough water in their reservoirs and they actually get enough precipitation each year and reservoirs to retain it to provide for all their water needs. Just as of um, October, which begins their water year, they've let out more than 4.5 million acre feet of water out of their reservoirs into the ocean in the San Francisco Sound. This sounds bizarro. You know, that, that, that we're, we're having this discussion, there's actual real problems, and, and that is happening. Yeah, they're, st- they're, they're taking the water from the Colorado River. At the same time, the same environmentalists are saying, save the Colorado River, right? We need to allow it to become, uh, to revert back to its, its natural status and, and provide for the natural species to thrive there. But they're pulling 4.4 million acre feet out of the water. And and before that, they were actually taking more than their allotted share. They were taking up to 5.7 million acre feet of, of water out of the Colorado each year. And that is what really started to drain the reservoirs. Because when you're taking 5.7 million acre feet out of a reservoir that is only supplying it with their portion share of, say, about 3.5 million acre feet, they're taking a lot more than the the water is being supplied into the reservoirs. And that explains why when we're down only 25% in the water flow, our reservoirs are down 75%. And California is going, hey, we got to really do something. We got to reduce Arizona's consumption of water. Hold on a second. You guys are piping it over to LA all the way across the state. And you're, you're cutting off the agriculture in the central California area when you have water and reservoirs to provide it for yourself. But the reason you're allowing it to run off into the ocean is because of the delta smelt, this two-inch fish, or minnow as most people would call it, that typically used as, as bait fish for bass fishermen because this delta smelt, which is apparently a, a native species. Well, what's native, right? You know, it, it, it's hard to say. Species change and, and we've got Darwinism occurring all the time, so survival of the fittest. But uh, they identified this delta smelt as native and worthy to be protected above and beyond the needs of the people of California and all the other wildlife that is actually sustained when you have healthy agriculture being produced. We got to go on a break. This is 5:60 a.m. KBLU Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this.
Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to 560 AM KBLU. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Uh, we've been talking a lot today about uh, the water issues that exist here off the Colorado, and it is relevant to us and our families because of the idea of being in what Sean had coined a, uh, a mega drought. And uh, we talked about the election consequences of, of a president and how that can actually change things. And in our particular situation, we had President Trump who was actively working to disengage the California bureaucracy from stealing our water, essentially, and dumping it into their Pacific Ocean, because that's what they've been doing in the name of saving this fish species in one of their lakes. But as a consequence, we and our local farmers are allocated less water to grow our crops, and Central California is also allocated less water. And uh, the Trump administration, like uh, Sean said in the earlier segment that uh, he he dictates to the Department of Interior, who is in charge of these types of ordeals across state lines, as to how to pr- proceed. And uh, the Trump administration was very pro, let's say, state um, in the sense that it was fighting for Arizona's ability to retain more water uh, so that it could grow more crops here. And we weren't in a drought situation and, and also allocate the water needed in California for the central Californian farms to really thrive and flourish. And um, it was actively doing that. And then President Biden was uh, was elected and everything stopped. And so now we have no we have not experienced a a police officer um, getting involved and saying, no, California, stop taking Arizona's water from the Colorado and dumping it into the ocean. If you're not going to use it, then give it back kind of thing. Um, and, and so we're in a situation where what do we do about it? Who gets involved and how do you fix the issue? I mean, physically, we could send the National Guard up to Lake Havasu and cut the pipes that are, are going to California. I don't know what that would do in, in between California and Arizona. I mean, would there be a standoff? I would like to think that we have better chances because we're armed and California is not, but that's their own fault. Okay. So if you want our water, come and get it. Right. Well, and you know, President Trump was really on the side and it's not Arizona's side. It's right. It's everybody's side. So what President Trump said is that it didn't say that that California wasn't entitled to their, 
they're 4.4 million acre feet. What what President Trump said is you need to stop pouring so much water into the ocean and allow it to go to the farmers that need it, because um, there was there was um, funding that was done by uh, prior governor Jerry Brown, I believe was his name, and yeah. So that tells you right there. Well, he wasn't popular, but this provision in particular was a good idea. He actually didn't do bad. He allocated $17 billion for um, 30-mile tunnels that would funnel water around Sacramento and the San Joaquin Deltas to go to agricultural land. And that would allow the reservoirs to produce water to, to the agriculture that needed it rather than it being poured into the ocean. And uh, Gavin Newsom and others fired back with statements like, you are going to sacrifice iconic species of California for this small-minded achievement of continuing human prosperity. <laughs> and, and, and what are these iconic species? The Delta Smelt a two-inch fish that is used typically as bait fish for, for bass and, and other real game fish. Now, there, there, there's another species that is endangered there, and that is the uh, Chinook salmon. And uh, here's the thing about those. They have now been on the endangered species list for 15 years. And if you do studies in the Delta where they were supposed to be preserved, they should be thriving because all of these millions of acre feet of water is flowing through their natural habitat and supposed to rejuvenate them, right? No. There's actually no no studies out there that I've seen that has shown any increase in their population. So what it's based on false science that if we take the water away from the farmers and let it pour back into the ocean, that these iconic minnows and this uh, Chinook salmon is going to thrive again and and elevate California to its original greatness because now these, these fish are thriving. Well, I think we need to get our priorities in order. We need clean drinking water. We need water for agriculture. We need to be self-sufficient in producing avocados and almonds and all of the things that California is famous for and produces a large portion of the world with. California produces 90% of the world's almonds, right? But almonds are a very thirsty um, crop. So we need water to do that. We have it. We're not taking away from sources that don't exist or over depleting sources that exist. We just want to use the water that's currently there instead of allowing it to flow into the ocean. And instead what they want to do is build a desalination plant, which is the biggest hypocrisy because a desalination plant, number one, costs a ton of money. Number two, it takes a lot of electricity to run. It doesn't produce as fresh of water that's already flowing and it's already in the reservoirs. And the amount of water is minuscule. It's only 60,000 acre feet of water per year if it's running at optimal levels. 60,000 acre feet of water compared to 4.5 million. Oh, yeah. And, and that 4.5 million, remember, that's only from the water year as of um, October. So we're talking more of like 7 to 8 million acre feet of water is flowing into the ocean. California's water crisis could be resolved by the stroke of a pin. If we had a common sense governor in that state that said, oh, we're going to use our resources for the best use of our, of our residents and our citizens, then we could have enough resources to go around. So Adam, one of your 
solutions, and I know that you say this tongue-in-cheek, but perhaps not, is just to go there and if California won't compromise and take apportioned uh, restrictions on their water usage, then Arizona could go over there and, and, and cut the pipes that are being pulled out of Lake Mead and feeding over into L.A. and, and to the other um, areas of California. Okay, um, that's a pretty drastic solution, but this is drastic times. I mean, if we run out of water, then everybody dies anyway. Another solution is there, if you've ever traveled a little bit east, you don't have to go very far, and once you hit the Mississippi, everything is green. There's water in abundance, and that water is coming down through the Mississippi and pouring out millions of acre feet of water into the ocean each year. And so one solution is to create a pipeline from the Great Lakes or from somewhere along the Mississippi and pipe that water over to maintain the reservoirs here in the West. I think if we're thinking as a nation as a whole, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I, I also think California should use its natural resources in the first place. And so that's, I think, a big sticking point for people in the East. They don't want water being pumped out of their water sources. But when you control the water flow, you actually limit the amount of natural disasters that occur. The Colorado River used to flow and wash out whole settlements fairly regularly in the early 1900s and in the 1800s. And now it doesn't because it's been controlled. And and habitat hasn't been uh, declining because of the control of the the Colorado River, it's thriving. We have so many more million acre feet of surface water level for the habitat to to thrive off of. But getting back to this Mississippi pipeline, there have been studies into it that determine its feasibility. If we can pump oil from Russia to Germany, right? we can pump water from the Mississippi to Lake Powell. And I think that is something that needs a further look into and and that would take 10 years that's that's what a study there's been millions of dollars put into studies for that project to determine whether or not it's feasible and they scratched it because it would take 10 years well that study actually took place more than 10 years ago had we implemented it we would already be there in a place that we could actually flip that switch but they're saying 10 years is too long based on the severity of the drought. Well, so what you're saying is because it's going to take 10 years, we're just going to give up the West for dead? Well, look at the system that was created out, out of you know the dam system and the, the canal system in the West. I mean, and that was in the 40s. Right. You know? So, yeah, with a, a pipeline, it'd be so much more efficient. And they right now, there's severe flooding that occurs all the time along the Mississippi. Now, I know that uh, eastern Kentucky is not along the Mississippi, but it's been flooded out. And so we have learned over time that levees actually sustain the ability for people to cohabitate with the river. And you keep the river within its channel, and it doesn't wash out a bunch of people, cause billions of dollars worth of damage, and, and kill people off. If we were allowed to pipe some of that water off, then it would reduce the amount of stress and the need for the levees, and it would produce 
the lifeblood that we need here in the West. It's really a win-win situation. If those states want to charge us for the water, I think that there's a deal that could be struck that we're happy to pay because we need that water for our continued growth and prosperity here in the West. That's all the time that we have for today. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Decent Garner & Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. <laughs>